Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. It's Hollister and O'Toole. So happy to be podcasting from the River Run International Film Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And it has just been a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, Hollister. Absolutely. Which is why we decided to do a list of six of our favorite things from the River Run Film Festival. So do you want to kick us off? Yes, I hope I can limit mine to just three, but here I go. Okay, (laughs) Okay. at the very top of the list, I have to put the people behind the festival. Everyone, I I mean, they could not be nicer. They have 300 volunteers working on the festival. I want to give a special shout out to Christy in the festival office. You know, we were chatting when I arrived and I was just mentioning a place that some of the locals had told me we really shouldn't miss when we were in town. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the R.J. Reynolds building. So she took me, you know, out of the festival office onto the street, points down the street. And she said, that's it right there. It's actually the inspiration for the Empire State Building. Hollister, (laughs) I had no idea. She said every year the Empire State Building in New York sends a Father's Day Day card card, (laughs) to the Reynolds Building here in Winston-Salem. I just thought that was awesome. Now, she's also in charge of press, which means she doesn't really have time to take you out to the streets. I I don't know how. I don't think she slept in months. I don't know how she's pulling this off. In addition to their kindness and and thoughtfulness, they also are really well-versed in everything. Whenever you ask somebody a question, we've been to so many festivals where you ask a question and everybody's like, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, And I just want to say the knowledge, not only of what's going on at the festival, but also the films around the festival, it's been really, really helpful to us. So I I totally concur on that one. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's that it takes place over 10 days. Most festivals are not that long. And somehow, and they show the films at different times so that if you miss it once, you can see it another time. And it's not... You know, they really have put the schedule together, I think, in a brilliant way. So it enables us to see the films at our, you know, in, in, a, in a place that works really well for us. The yes. way they give access to people like us has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, Hollister. Okay, so next on my list, I'm going to have to put how integrated the community is with the film festival. The people of Winston-Salem are so attached to the arts. When we first arrived, of course, I had to do my little ritual run to Trader Joe's and pick up some things. Right, as well as putting an actual... kitchen into our suite, whatever. I think Go from ahead. day one, I already knew I might want to move to Winston-Salem, but one of my great heroes, Maya Angelou, taught here at Wake Forest University. Yeah. And I was talking to some of the locals and they were just telling me some stories about Maya Angelou. When she passed away here a few years ago, they said the public just flocked to her home. There's an African-American song, 19th century, which... Um, it's so great. It says, when it looked like the sun wasn't going to shine anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. Imagine. And I've had so many rainbows in my clouds. I had a lot of clouds. But I have had so many rainbows. And one of the things I do when I step up on a stage, when I stand up, to translate, when I go to teach my classes, when I go to direct a movie, I bring everyone who has ever been kind to me with me. Black, white, Asian, Spanish-speaking, Native American, gay, straight, everybody. I say, come with me. 
I'm going on the stage. Come with me, I need you now. Long dead. You see? So I don't ever feel I have no help. I've had rainbows in my clouds. You know, the other thing she did in her home, when you went into her home, um, if you spoke ill of another person, she'd ask you to leave. Mm-hmm. She really didn't allow any conversation that came from a negative place or a denigrating place. And since my father always told me that speaking ill of another is a false way of elevating yourself, um, I sort of, I, I really admired that. And people have, were asked to leave her home. So I think her home has really good energy in it. So yeah, that's great. I like that. Okay, I think the films they've, to- I have to, we have to talk about the quality of the films they've chosen. A couple of them I haven't loved, meaning um, I haven't really enjoyed watching them, but I totally understood the choice. And I can't, I can't think of a film we've seen that didn't belong here. You know, really, really, really thoughtful, great choices. They clearly did a tremendous amount of due diligence before they made those choices. So hats off to the choices at River Run as well. Hollister, I totally agree. The quality and diversity of their programming has been exemplary. So for my last one, I'm going to put the venues. The venues here, I've really loved. And they've done a lot of screenings at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, which... I didn't know this before I arrived. It was the first state-sponsored school for the performing arts in the U.S. Huh. Yeah. Well, they have a lot of schools there, and that that clearly shows up. But for my last one, I'm going to say the best thing about this for me was I have reunited with some high school friends, <laughs> Diane Barrett, who follows us on Screen Thoughts because she loves films the way we do. She's the one who suggested a year ago that we come, and it was too close to the festival. We couldn't make arrangements to get here in time. We had already committed to some other festivals, but uh, but we committed a year ago to come, and thanks to Diane for bringing us here. But in addition to that, I hadn't seen them in 46 years, and being able to see two of my very bestest friends, my BFFs from high school, has been one of the highlights of the film festivals for me. So, you know, big thanks to Diane for bringing us down here and for knowing all these fabulous people that have taken such good care of us. A huge thanks to Diane, honestly. And I was just so curious to learn that she was wondering about your love of Silence of the Lambs. I always thought maybe it was something that took place in your formative years that explained your attachment to Hannibal Lecter. Well, it was funny. We met for lunch when we got here, and Diane and I met for lunch. And an hour into the lunch, like, in totally not related to any, we just kept going on with conversation, conversation, this, that, you know, back and forth. And then all of a sudden she looks up at me and says, Silence of the Lambs? And I said, oh, you totally don't get it, and it's a great feminist film. And anyway, she said she was going to revisit it. So I'm going to give her an opportunity to really come to the dark side with me on Silence of the Lambs. I was relieved that she didn't order Chianti and fava beans at that lunch. Loved meeting (laughs) Diane. Huge, huge thanks to Diane and the festival. Okay. And now before we get to our films um, of this week, I read something that I thought was interesting. And it was about that the cinema chains, you know, the bricks and mortar cinema chains hate Netflix and they love Amazon. (laughs) And what's really interesting to me is, you know, Amazon's a live stream also, you know, it does pull people away from the cinema. Mm -hmm. But because Amazon has been willing, you know, after some wariness about it, but what, you know, they have been willing to screen some of their movies and uh, take the 90 day, 
you know, a hiatus before they put them up online, et cetera. They're, they like them better than Net, Netflix, who just basically has ignored bricks and mortar and gone totally into uh, into regular film. Now, okay, so Amazon, Jason Ropel, who's Amazon's global head of motion pictures, told IndieWire last year that um, he was planning to release 15 movies. It was ambitious, and he said, quote, damn scary. And they released 15 films last year, which, you know, for you can't you can't go to a movie uh, production company and see 15 films in a year anywhere else. But uh, but they would wait the traditional 90 days after the films. Okay, so that's really paid off for them. Um, But, you know, The Big Sick, which is coming up this year, produced by Judd Apatow and Woody Allen's Wonder Wheels coming, um, The Lost City of Z, which would benefit from boss office runs. And The Lost City of Z is the last film on the festival this week. Well, what about a populist argument that Netflix brings more programming to families quicker, where it's less expensive to see them than actually paying the box office at the brick-and-mortar cinemas? You know what? And you're totally right. But but what this article was about is why the cinema chains hate Netflix. I understand. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it makes total sense. But the other one we have to see, we can, I cannot wait for it. It's coming out actually on Netflix. So it's not coming to bricks and mortar, but it's called War Machine with Brad Pitt. Have you heard about it? Remind me. Okay, so War Machine is actually about this general that comes over to end the war in Afghanistan, and Brad Pitt looks like he's playing a totally different role than he's used to. And I put it up this past week on my Trailer Tuesdays. Every Tuesday I put up a trailer on our social media. So go watch the trailer if you haven't seen it, and it's coming out at the end of the month. I cannot wait, cannot wait. So I just thought that was interesting to let you know that the cinema chains hate Netflix and they're loving Amazon. It's interesting, too, that Amazon owns IMDb the International Movie Database, one of the most popular internet websites. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Good yeah. to know. So to every know. time yeah. you see those little films that are featured in the background, like Manchester by the Sea, you might realize, <laughs> oh yeah, those are those are films put out by Amazon. Okay, so let's move on, if we can, to Big Little Lies ended Sunday night, and everyone's talking about it. I cannot get it out of my mind, and we did discuss it when the first episode launched seven long weeks ago, but we have to revisit it today. Did you get a chance to finish watching it? I did. I watched it here in my hotel room, and it's funny because I was at a late night screen here at the festival, came back to the hotel room, had HBO, which was kind of fun to watch it on the big screen, caught the last 10 minutes. And then I thought, oh, I really want to see the whole episode. But it was streaming again after that, but only in Spanish. So I, <laughs> I saw the last episode in Spanish and then went back. Simplemente me aferro a la idea de la perfección con tanta fuerza. No puedo continuar así. Su esposo está enfermo, Celeste, pero usted también. Me repetía, él va a cambiar. Quédate por ellos. Todos hacemos cosas malas. Well, it's a good thing you're bilingual. I'm not claiming I'm bilingual, but it was interesting to see it dubbed. We have to start at the beginning, okay? Which means we have to start with the theme song. Um, now, by the way, Mark Vallée, who is the director of the entire series, he chose all the music, and he's very particular about it. 
And the theme song is Cold Little Heart, which I, of course, downloaded into iTunes. And we're going to play it for you a little bit here. What an, um, you know, and it it shows um, Reese Witherspoon driving down the coast and this song comes on and you, before it even begins, any of the episodes begin, you are in it, you're alive, you're awake. This is such a great theme song in. Didn't you think so? It was a great use of music. Yeah, and here's a quote from him. He said, yeah, I pick every song meticulously. That's what I like to do. That's part of my thing. I like to spin and DJ at the same time. There is no original music in anything I do. It's all about finding the right tracks to put in, to play it through, and the characters. And the song, this part, You Get What You Need, became the title of the episode seven. So he used it in a ton of different ways. And, you know, Fleetwood Mac's Dreams is one of the songs. I mean, it's just incredible. The music has to be, has to be discussed. Now let's go to the plot. Uh, you read the book, right? I did. Yes, yeah, so I wasn't as surprised by the ending. Uh, well, but <laughs> interestingly enough, a couple things I want to point out between the book and the film, if we can... And, you know, in the book, it takes place in Australia, not in Monterey. Did Now, did you think that was a problem? Did I sort of liked it in Monterey. I didn't think it was a problem, which surprised me because I was so attached to the Australian setting. But the adaptation, it was very fun to watch to see how they adapted it to California. And it was true to the feel of California, where it became much more of a visual yeah, music agree. video. Yeah, you know? I think so too. And interesting, you know, Bonnie um, Carlson, who's played by Zoe Kravitz. Okay, mm-hmm. so by the way, spoiler alerts, do not listen right now if you <laughs> haven't seen the last one. But she, you know, she of course is the murderer and she pushes him down the stairs, but she comes running from That's afar. That's a strong use of murderer there, Hollister. Well, she did murder him. She intended she intended to push him down. But anyway, the problem with with the film or the of the series is we don't have her backstory, her her story, as I like to call it, set of history. Mm-hmm. Um, her dad was an abuser, and so when she saw the interaction between Nicole Kidman and Alexander Skorsgard, she um, she sort of sensed what it was. So that's why she followed them out there. And her visceral response to attack him as he was attacking her came from her childhood history. And I think um, I think you need that. I think that was missing. And it sort of made you wonder why, you know, this sort of secondary character comes from an obscure place with no knowledge of anything going on and, and, and you know, pushes him down the stairs. You know, it didn't really sort of make sense to me. So I felt... Like that was, I agree. Yeah. That was much more layered in the book. And then you realize her whole characterization as being right. this holistic yogi was much more contextualized in the book. It was very interesting because the book, it was such a culmination of words, the confrontation, the dialogues, yeah. Shailene yeah. Woodley's character, where you find out her backstory. So it was interesting to see it done, again, in a very visual way and a very silent way. Well, and he uses silence a lot, and he talks about that in a number of interviews, which I thought was really interesting. But the other two things I think you should know is that in the end, Celeste gives Jane money for Ziggy. Mm-hmm. Okay, True. I mean, I just, you know, I just think it's good to know that poor Jane, who was struggling so much, you know, uh, Celeste did the right thing. So that's number one. And number yeah. two, Bonnie turns herself into the police in the end, and she gets she gets a uh, community service and they don't show that in in this uh in this series either so and in the book it was a very interesting conversation between madeline and ed 
and Ed's whole problem with how they were testifying or not testifying to the police, you know, a lot more context in the book. Watching the movie adaptation, you thought, okay, this definitely has David E. Kelly's imprimatur all over it, where he made the most of their singing abilities, kind of like Allie McBeal, where when you see them at this school night, you know, they just took turns going up to the mic and doing their Elvis songs. I enjoyed watching that on the big screen. Yeah, but they were not really singing. The oh, only one, even no. Zoe Kravitz. Zoe, Zoe Kravitz was the only one, but it's very funny because, um, you know, the, some of these interviews, Valet's interview about it was like those two guys could not sing their way out of a paper bag, oh. and he brought in you know, ma- major singers. And then somebody asked, "Well, why wouldn't? Why did you make them such good singers? Why, you know, in a school thing like that, wouldn't they have been less adept at singing?" And he said, "Then it would have been funny, and there was nothing funny about this night." Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking, wow, Adam Scott and James Tupper really can sing. Yeah, they, well, now I'm going to be impressed with how they can lip sync. Which I would like to point out is what La La Land should have done. You know, <laughs> like you bring in great singers when you're trying to make that move. But he said Zoe Kravitz. He clearly was totally enamored with her performance. But interesting, that night, the, you know, the, the episode seven, which is the final episode, half of which takes place during this event, at the, you know, around the school, which for a public school, that was quite an event, I might point out. Mm. Um, okay, 14 days to shoot, starting at 8 o'clock at night, going till 6 in the morning with every single person on site because he only uses one camera. And it's the way he shoots. And so he doesn't have more than one camera ever on set. And so they were all there from 8 o'clock at night until 6 in the morning. They all said it was very grueling. And I, he sort of said something was sort of creepy, I have to say. I did question the use. This was a woman's series. This is about women's lies that we that you know everyone tells. There are the secrets that they keep from each other, trying to keep your persona up there. Big little lies, you know, the kids lie. Everyone lies, right? And uh, and Reese Witherspoon, who is very committed to women in film, I, I thought her choice of using him, and she worked with him in Wild, which is, I think, why she picked him for this. But um, I was surprised she didn't go with a woman director like a Nancy Myers. I would love to have seen Nancy Myers attack this because Nancy Myers intuitive sense about women and how to position them in front of the camera, etc. I think the guy did a great job. But here's what he said that I didn't like. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. He, he's, here's what they said to him. You mentioned that it was tough directing five women at the same time. This was for the big night scene. Uh, do you mean that it differs from your experience directing multiple men at the same time? There was a long pause, and then he says, hmm, Fifth Amendment. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's what I said. That's exactly what I said, O'Toole. <laughs> really? After the gift, these, you know, first of all, he's going to be up for best director in a series for the Golden Globes for sure. The gifts that those women gave him, that's how he responds, as if it's harder to direct five women than five men. I was really not happy with that response, just so you know. Well, I don't mind mixing the genders on these projects. I mean, look at when Harry met I don't Sally. either. Yeah, and no, I get it. Yeah, you know, I get And it. it's often a strong collaboration if you've got different points of view, you know. What I did think was interesting is some of the reviewers who said, well, you know, the male characters were just such throwaways. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know, they weren't as big a throwaways as perhaps any female part in any big summer blockbuster coming out of Hollywood. Well, like welcome to Diane our world, Lane gentlemen. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. But I'm very interesting yeah. to see Vale's new series, Sharp Objects, starring Amy Adams. Oh, I don't know about this. When's it, is it yes. coming out? Okay, great. It is. It's coming out this year. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, the other interesting thing is um, they asked Reese Witherspoon, like, what it was like to be working on set with such an incredible group of actor, actresses. And she said... I've never gotten to work with actresses of this caliber because we're usually cordoned off and we're the only women in the movies. Usually you're with a group of men and you're the only girl. To have all these amazing women there and all these great men too, and working with Jean, you know, Jean-Marc Vallée, directing was really just a dream. But that's interesting. It's true. You rarely see five women like this uh, you know, taking over 90% of a film. But this was an HBO series, and I feel like you're seeing it more and more on television. Orange is the New Black. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really well said. Now, the other quote I want to give you, and I'm sorry I'm quoting so much, I rarely do that, but... um, Okay, so they asked Reese Witherspoon, were you always going to play that part? And she said, I didn't know who I was going to play. Nicole Kidman really wanted to play Celeste, but I don't know. I thought for a minute I might have played Renata. And then I was in a meeting with David Kelly and Nicole, and I said I didn't know who I was going to play, and they looked at me like I was crazy, and they said, you're Madeline. And I said, I I am. And then I said, what do you mean? And they were like, you are very clearly Madeline. And I thought, is this an insult? I don't know. (laughs) And then she said, and then, but then I kind of started thinking about how I would do it, and I started talking to Nicole. She was very helpful when I... I was creating the character. We added a lot of stuff that wasn't in the book. Okay. First of all, why would people not like Madeline? She, you know. I really liked Madeline I in the book. I did too. Right. And exactly. I really liked Madeline and Ed's relationship in the book. Are you kidding? And you know what? Wait, wait, book, wait, wait, wait. Why did you like that relationship? She insulted oh, him over and over again. In the book? Oh, in the book, yeah. It didn't really come out as much in the TV series, but nor do I recall her having an affair in the book. She didn't in the book. Yeah, I wonder why they added that. Well, they answered that question in an interview, and they added it because she said that every woman had a secret that was sort of they'd done something wrong or they were hiding something except for Madeline. And so they wanted to give Madeline something to hide also. Oh, that was a gift? Well, something to lie about. Like, well, you know, what was, where was she lying if not that, you know, so that's why they gave it to her. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I couldn't believe, all through this entire series, I'm thinking the therapist who's played by Robin Weigart, uh, I, I kept saying how good I thought she was and also how compelling and interesting looking. And then we get to River Room Film Festival and we saw her in... Pushing dead. I know. I mm-hmm. and there she was, and I thought, oh my gosh, this woman is going to have a huge future. I mean, she's clearly easing her way in, but it was a small role, but it was an important role. And her portrayal as the therapist who's trying to contain herself, when really what she wants to say is, "You're not leaving this room until you commit to never seeing this guy again." You know. I just, I thought she was mesmerizing. I thought she was excellent. And she has already been nominated for an Emmy for her part on Deadwood. Oh, she so, has? Oh, I, yes. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't see her in that. Did you see her in that? It wasn't a series that I watched. It was HBO again. Oh, so, okay. you know, I need another hotel room. But she's been <laughs> in quite a few parts. But what a range oh, of ability because it, two completely different roles. So good. Really good. And the other thing is, you know, I'm not a Nicole fan. I am now. Really? I am now. 
Really? She, now, by the way, she said that she went home bruised. She was in terrible pain. Although she had a body double, she did most of the scenes herself. She said it was brutal to go through those scenes. And they did them in order because I guess Valet uh, felt that they should build up to it. And she said that helped where, you know, the abuse got worse and worse and worse. But she said she went home many a night in terrible pain, you know, from being thrown against the wall and stuff. And... um I have huge new respect. I thought her performance in the therapist's office was genius. The way her discomfort, but really needing to say something, but trying to choose her words and trying to find her way. And the therapist says at one point that she's shocked that someone with such an astute capability of seeing something could also be so good at uh, pretending what was happening wasn't happening. I can't remember exactly the line, but it was really, really well said. It made me yearn for the HBO series In Treatment. <laughs> but now, did Alexander Skorsgård, did he have to beat up Nicole Kidman? I guess that wasn't a body double. He must have been a little traumatized after filming those scenes as you know, well. You know, they asked him that. He didn't seem to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, you know, no judgment, no job, you know, no judgment on you whatsoever. But he said, you know, well, it was an interesting role and he thought it was, you know, really he didn't use the word fun. That's my word. But he said it was great playing the role because it called on so many things that are not necessarily part of his everyday life. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said that he said, you know, that it took two nights to shoot the scene when he dies, you know, with the five women, you know, on the steps. And he said that was amazing to be around these five incredible actors and I think he does a really good job when they show his face when he realizes that Jane is the person he raped. Mm-hmm. Okay, O'Toole, the kids. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't they good? Madeline's daughter, don't you think she was just... I liked her the best. Okay, you didn't like the others? Ziggy did freak me out a little bit. I think maybe <laughs> I think just from the... Well, I think from the haircut, it was so militaristic, which reminded me maybe of Stand By Me and the pie-eating scene. So maybe that was just my own personal trauma. But I thought Ziggy would have a different look. Well, if you go back, by the way, to episode one, when the teacher confronts the class and says, someone hit her and who is it? And the, the we get a for we get a foreshadowing there. It's the only foreshadowing that I noticed. And I asked, I talked to Diane Barrett, by the way, who she said she did not have, you know, she had not read the book, and and I wanted to check in with her and say, did you know in the end who it was? And she absolutely was blown away by the ending because she had no idea. But if you look, for example, in, in episode one, when the teacher says, okay, who did this? It pans over to the twins, and you can see that he's very uncomfortable, and we should have picked it up. So go back and check that out on episode one. But I thought those kids were great. The only thing that I questioned was their taste in music. There's no way five-year-olds were into <laughs> the music that they were supposedly into. Well, Would you, do you agree? Maybe it was just the influence of their parents. You know, uh, clearly they were influenced by their parents on many levels, which was one of the themes of the show. Yeah, well, I had a lot of influence on my five-year-old when she was five, and I'm telling you, she would not have loved what I, Barry Manilow, which is what I was listening to. Okay, but, you know, she does share your love of Silence of the Lambs. She so does. you got to her in those formative years. Well, there you go. Uh, anyway, great series. Congratulations to everyone involved in it. Big, big, big congrats. Um, so don't you think uh, for sure Golden Globes? Come on, right? Oh, I'd, I'd be surprised if it doesn't get nominated for something. Everybody keeps saying they want a season two. And I want to say, America, sometimes you don't get to have an ice cream cone right after you finished one. Oh. Yeah. 
Like, no offense. What is there about our culture that's like, okay, you see something this great, and it's like, okay, then you have to give me more now. No, they don't. The story was told, and Ballet said he's not doing a season two. He doesn't think it's a good idea, even though some of the women who were in it would love to do another one because they had such a swell time together. But the truth is the story was told. That's the end of the story. We're not getting any more. So get over yourselves and quit asking. But, you know, Leanne Moriarty has written so many great novels. Uh I think if The Husband's Secret really does get made, that would be the perfect follow-up, where, again, some very strong female characters, a secret... I would love to see a visual but they should be of that different. Book. But they should be different actors, don't you think? I don't know. It would be kind of fun if they didn't. No. It would almost be a throwback to the old Hollywood studio days where people had contracts with the studios and often ended up in the same yeah, productions but I, together. I, I feel like they developed their characters so well that I would have trouble deciphering one from another. I think that, in other words, there's plenty of actors who would love to play you know, her, her, her character roles. And I just feel like that's done. Put it to bed. And, you know, we need to put it to bed on this podcast, too, because we have to talk about the zookeeper's wife. But um, but I do think that there's sometimes things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this had a great beginning, middle, and end. And we should be grateful for that and not ask for more. And anyone who hasn't read the book can go read the book. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. All right. Now we have to go to the zookeeper's wife. And you go. You have to lead on this one because I'm depleted from the exceptional... Thing we just came from. Okay, well, if I've got a transition from Big Little Lies to The Zookeeper's Wife, I'll just <laughs> lead with this is another visual adaptation based on a best-selling book, the 2007 book by the naturalist Diane Ackerman, which itself was based on the real-life unpublished diary of Antonina Zabinska, this incredible woman who, along with her husband Jan, helped save the lives of so many. Yeah, about, about yeah, 300 went through, they said. Good morning, enjoy yourselves today. Antonina Zabinska uh, is married to Jan, and he's the zookeeper of the Warsaw Zoo, so the, the two of them run a zoo. And at, you know, at the, at World War II, when um, her zoo was bombed, and they're forcing the Jews into the ghetto, she and her husband decide to risk their lives and the lives of their children to smuggle people out of the ghetto and hide them in the zoo. Okay, here's, but here's what I kept coming back to. In the book, basically on the cover of the book, it says they were ordinary people in an extraordinary time who did, you know, a really good thing, but they were, it was very, they were very ordinary. And I felt as if the movie sort of made them ordinary when really they were extraordinary. And plus, I didn't think she was anywhere near as interesting as her husband. And really, yeah, I just it was like it should have been the zookeeper. And also, really, she didn't seem like he was the zookeeper. She seemed like she was the zookeeper. Maybe because I keep watching Sloan over again. I refuse to call it Miss Sloan, by the way. Um, I watched Sloan over and over again. I just, I had a hard time with Jessica uh, uh, moving into her accent, which she did really well, but it was still her. I don't know. I had, I had a hard time with it. A couple things on that. Back in our podcast on Selma, when I mentioned the real-life mother-daughter memoir called Freedom in the Family, wonderful book um, written by Patricia Stevens Dew and her daughter, Tanana Reeve Dew. And the mother, who was a huge civil rights activist here in the U.S., she made a big point of this, saying that, you know, it almost bummed her out. She said it much more eloquently when people keep putting 
certain people from history on pedestals because she said, no, 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 we are all foot soldiers. We can all do something extraordinary. And so I think she would have liked that, that it says, you know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things to encourage all of us to, to rise up when that moment comes. <laughs> That's not what I want to see. <laughs> you know, I mean, Schindler, I don't, I don't. Schindler was an ordinary guy too, but he... He came alive on the screen in a way they did not. Even as you mentioned that, I was cringing a little bit going, please tell me that no one walked into a pitch meeting in Hollywood and said, this is Schindler's List in a zoo. I thought, okay, this is one of those moments. I I I know. The standout performance for me was Danielle Brühl. Did you know who, by the way, uh, did you see him in Burnt? You didn't see Burnt. Did I see Burnt and you didn't? You saw Burnt, but I've seen him in so many German movies. So I've been a fan of his work for a ah, long time. Fabulous. He was in Goodbye Lennon. It's funny though, to me, because he's been in so many German movies I really enjoyed. It really bothered me to see him with the swastika on his arm. Well, it bothers me to see anybody with a swastika on their arm. But he was also in Woman in Gold. Very different yeah. role. Burnt, very different role. And it shows his breadth. I mean, you know, he. He's great. And I'll tell you a little secret. Ready? So in between takes during the movie, Jessica Chastain was taught the nastiest German swear words by him. They sat during the breaks and Danielle uh, Bruhl taught her German swear words. What have you been up to in your little zoo? This is one of those movies where as I was watching it, I just kept thinking, how on earth did they make this movie? They've got fires and bombs and all the zoo animals that Jessica Chastain really interacted with. And I was kind of wondering, because do you remember our podcast about a dog's purpose? And there was that whole brouhaha about the video that I thought, okay, some of these animals, please tell me that was CSI where the bombs are going off in the backdrop and you see these alarmed animals running for their lives in the Warsaw Zoo. Well, they said the only ones that were actually real were the cubs. You know, when she's holding the cubs, those are real, but all the others, I I don't know how they did it, but... Here's a little clip of Jessica Chastain talking about interacting with the elephants. I worked very closely with the wrangler, the animal wranglers, and so what I would do is before the takes for that scene with Lily, I would feed her a bunch of apples, and then right before action, or right at action, I would show her an apple, and then I'd walk away and I'd like hide the apple. So she knew that I was the one to go to for the treat. So it's a trick, but that way the, the trunk, um, her playing with me, she's actually looking for food. How great is that? I mean, gosh, what a great opportunity, huh? You know, what you said about the zookeeper versus the zookeeper's wife, it was also fascinating to me that Antonina in real life was such an animal whisperer where she had such a gift for calming these animals down and interacting with them. Well, God knows that was a perfect time in history because I'm sure they needed to be calmed down way more than they should have had to be. Also, did you think their son was good? Did you think he was good in that role? I liked the first son, the younger one. The next one, I thought he was a little plump for wartime era. I thought, I don't know what he's Um, eating. After Danielle leaves him, I don't think he had that fear you know, you would your adrenaline would be rushing and then you'd collapse. I mean, I just I didn't think he really lived up to the to the moments that he was supposed to be portraying, you know. Even when he comes out to his mother after she thought he's been shot. I just I don't know, I didn't I didn't find him compelling. Mama. Also, why would they paint the walls of the basement? How stupid was that? Again, something yeah. visual for the screen, but I, I thought yeah. the same thing. One actor who I thought his performance was very interesting was Johann Heldenberg, who plays Jessica Chastain's husband. The country's completely overrun. 
I thought he was amazing also, and I looked him up because I, well, I don't you really know, know where we've seen him. Where? Where did you? Because I, I glanced through, and I didn't think I'd seen He's anything. He's the he was... Belgian actor from Broken Circle Breakdown, oh. the movie that so traumatized me. Huh. My circle has been broken ever since. <laughs> he wrote the play that that movie was based on, a very talented guy. Huh. Huh. Um, I thought he was very, very good. And I also thought he, I wanted more of him and a little less of her. I thought he was more interesting. Well, in the film version, they make their relationship more congenial because I thought that was very interesting in the book where Jan is not such a great guy. I mean, definitely a freedom fighter, a resistance fighter, um, a noble person from that perspective. But he didn't treat Antonina all that well in the book. And at one point, Diane Ackerman said, she quoted someone who said he rigidified under the strain, but their relationship was a lot more palatable on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, really, really. Now, also, um, it was filmed not in Warsaw. It was filmed in the Czech Republic. Yeah. But it had its world premiere in Warsaw. Look, what a terrible time in history. And, you know, I, I don't know that they'll ever stop making movies about wartime, World War II, uh, I just can't imagine that they would because there's still so many stories to tell. And they're stories of goodness, and I really, really appreciate them in moments of looking back on a terrible historical time in the world, you know? Well, Hollister, like you, I'm so drawn to tales of resistance, but I'm devastated by humans' ability to torture each other. And I don't know, I think I'm going to have to take a, a break from yet another World War II. Okay, but you know what uh, I can do now for you? I can break into tales as old as time, (laughs) sure as they can be. Comparing the book to the movie, like Hidden Figures in our podcast about that, the book had a lot more facts and context, but the movie, of course, made it much more visual. So there's a lot of animal facts in the book, for example, that giraffes give birth standing up or that elephants don't jump. But what was done well in the book and in the movie was this parallel between the fate of the zoo animals and the humans in the war. So again, the book goes into more context, but there's a very scary parallel between the eugenics programs of the Nazis, the breeding programs of the zoo animals, that both animals and the humans suffered death by bombing. They were both locked in cages. I thought that parallel was you know, very poignant. Mm, yeah, I did. Yeah, I get it. I absolutely get it. You can never tell your enemies are or how to trust maybe that's why I love animals so much you look in their eyes and you know exactly what's in their hearts you know Jessica can do anything she's amazing and in the book it was more interesting the part where the humans that they were hiding they gave them the same names as the animals who had occupied those cages yeah. And it was kind of their code to figure out who they were talking about. Well, you know, I, would you recommend people go to it? I'm not sure I would. Maybe watch it on when it gets to Netflix or somewhere, but I'm not sure it's, uh, you know, it hasn't done that well in the box office. Jessica Chastain did say something, though, very interesting about bravery and strength. I think we do have a stereotype that in order to be brave or strong, it's somehow connected to violence, that you're defending someone or you're fighting to protect your country or, you know, there are many, that's our definition of what a hero is, but there are many other ways that someone can be brave and strong. And um, I think Antonina shows that. She shows that compassion 
and is, is an incredible form of strength. The movie was directed by the New Zealand director, Nikki Caro. You know, her name was really put on the map with her film Whale Rider. Do you remember when the 12-year-old Keisha Castle Hughes was nominated for an Oscar? I do. I love that movie, and I thought it was better better directed than this. And then she did North Country, starring Charlize Theron and Frances McDormand, yeah. both of whom were also nominated for Oscars. So she definitely has a history of bringing some very strong female roles to the big screen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't see a female touch in the direction. Did you? I don't really know what that means. Well, in The Hurt Locker, I talked about the female touch of when they're sitting in sniper land and he opens up his water and gives it to the guy sitting next to him rather than to himself. There was just some moments that you don't usually see in war films. And if you had asked me to guess who had directed this, I would not have said a woman. Really? See, I don't know. I mean, Hurt Locker, I could have used with more female touches since I stopped watching when the head exploded in the helmet. But I, th- I think oh, that's get, a you know, hum- I think it. it's yeah. a humane <laughs> touch as opposed to, I don't know, I'm, I'm not ready to just genderize some of these humane traits. Well, I think, traits. by the way, I think in, in war films, though, I do, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that I think the Hurt Locker did so well is because she was able to bring a nurturing moment to a war film that would not, I don't think would have been otherwise shown in that. I I do think there was a female touch there that was worth noting. And in this, I just didn't, I I, I felt like Jessica was never really established as an, as a, as, you know, even the scene where she goes in to, to give her body to get information about her husband and then decides halfway through she can't do it. I didn't think that was nailed from a directoral point of view. I thought Jessica did a good job acting, but I don't think it really nailed the choice she had to make in that moment. And I I don't know, I just didn't. And, you know, as someone who read the book before I saw the movie, that part bothered me too, because in the film, they just imply that there was this relationship, this intimate selling of her body between her and Lutz Heck, which was not in the book. Yeah, but I, I see your point completely, Hollister. Yeah. The, yeah. And even the zoo animals, when you see them on the big screen, it almost seems too fantastical. You know, where all of a sudden you see camels and ostriches running down the street. And yet, I've often wondered, I mean, I know I'm going to sound like Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye with <laughs> Where Do the Ducks Go in Central Park. But I've often wondered where they do go. I mean, even in Boston, when you get blizzards in the winter, what do they do with all the zoo animals? They can bring them inside. When a hurricane strikes, like Matthew in St. Augustine last year, you know, all of a sudden you've got all those animals at the alligator farm. You know, what do you do with those animals? So that scene in the movie where they shoot the animals because they say they're not going to survive the war, it did give me pause because the first big zoo I ever went to in my life was the Berlin Zoo. And unlike art pieces that were confiscated by the Nazis and then end up in other people's hands after the war. I never really thought about the animals. I don't believe in zoos and I don't believe in circuses. So I don't like animals locked up for our enjoyment at staring at them. I just think it's weird. And I think if aliens came from outer space, they would go, what are you people thinking? So I don't ever go to zoos and I don't ever go to circuses. I heard a very interesting talk a few years ago by Jane Goodall. And she said when she first started out, she was so anti-zoo for those very reasons, because they were so not humane. And she said now the world, these are not her words, but it's so out of whack 
that when she thinks about the wild, where there's so much poaching going on of gorillas, etc., and zoos, some of them have gotten so much more humane trying to recreate their natural habitat. She said she's revisiting that a little bit. Well, I don't know how. You give me one natural habitat in you know, 20 feet by 80 feet when they can roam for miles and hundreds of miles. There's, and I don't yet, think it's such a thing. in some of these places now, they might be able to roam, but they're not. They're running for their lives where poachers are out trying to kill them. So, Well, how about we get rid of the poachers rather than lock them all up in smaller containers? So we'll know? take the poachers and lock them up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> you know, Rather than saying, okay, it's better for you in a zoo because we have totally taken away your natural habitat, I think we should put back their natural <laughs> habitat. That's a better solution from my point of view. You know, um, another thing that came out more in the book, which had more context, was how Poland first suffers at the hands of the Germans, and then the Russians come in. Yeah, amazing, right? Really amazing. So would you recommend people go to this movie? I didn't get an answer, I don't think. You know, no. Again, I I totally appreciate how much work goes into creating this world. No one knows how hard it is. But for me, you know, if you're interested in the topic, I would say read the book. Exactly. Okay, then. Hollister, as I was watching the credits, I totally thought of you. Uh, Of course. Because they gave credit to the orchestra who recorded the score. And guess where it was recorded? Abbey Road? The Abbey Studios in London. You're absolutely Uh, correct. For those who haven't listened to it, we put up a bonus podcast about score, a documentary about film music. Thank you, River Run International Film Festival. All right. 